This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by none other than Aquarium Co-op. And who better to talk about Aquarium Co-op than the founder, the president, the CEO, Corey McElroy himself. Corey, what is, what's like an unsung product in the, in the lineup right now where you're like, man, I can't believe we don't sell more of that. Do we? I have to think for a moment because I, I feel that way about half the products because I, I hand select every single product, right? Like I test it, I play with it, and I, I make a decision to like, we're going to bring this in. I think the world needs this. And then when it doesn't launch like that, I always wonder what went wrong. And, you know, some of it I, I realize like a, like a Vitachem, it's one like it takes work. And I, I totally identify with like, oh, extra work. People don't have that time in the day type of thing. But to me, I think it's a lot of the stuff that, I've loved for many years, like uh, Hikari pellets and stuff like that, where I've been using them for 10 plus years, and they're in my fish room right now, and I fed some of my fish yesterday, but from a marketing standpoint and all of that, I'd be talking about extreme flake food or something like that, and it's not that I don't still feed those other ones, and they're still in the rotation, it's just they're not getting the press time, and so typically what we talk about in videos and we show is what sells, and people forget about things and I can watch the sales trends like I know right now really I should put out a video about vibrobites they're not selling nearly as well as they did last year they haven't changed at all they're still amazing and I still get you know customers tell me like yeah my pee puffers are eating them and I still get customers say hey mine won't like it's they're still the exact same as they were but because I'm not hyped up on them and they're still in my fish room I haven't fed any in probably three days or something, but I still use them. But if I don't bring it to people's attention, it falls by the wayside. And I, I feel a little guilty about that because I evaluate that product. I still think it's amazing. I still use it. But then the company, you know, maybe we're talking to a car. They're like, oh, yeah, sales have gone down. It's like, oh, well, I, I can't be a spokesman for every product out there always. And unfortunately, when people find out maybe about this podcast or the YouTube channel, they don't go back and watch old videos, you know, maybe one out of 10 people does that. So most people never see the prior work we've done. And I actually, that came to fruition this year with Easy Green. It used to be easily number one sold product always for the last like four or five years. And this was the first year where it, it sl slipped into like third place. And I was like, how could that be? This thing is my baby. And I realized I hadn't talked about it on a video in like nine plus months. And so it's like, oh, out of sight, out of mind. That makes sense. And so now I'm I'm focusing a little bit more on like, I spent a long time, many years before we even had the store, developing Easy Green, using it personally, and I sung the praises for years straight, and then I didn't sing praises like almost at all for a very long time, and uh, you know, it suffers for that. So that's, I would say, that's the biggest thing is I handpick every product, and I test it, and I really do care about them, and there's lots of products that, there's plenty of money on the table that I turn down just because I don't think that thing actually works, or I don't think someone actually needs that product or I don't like the way you're marketing that because it doesn't do that. So Let's go full circle on the Vitachem. So the bottle on Vitachem, I believe, actually tells you just to dose it directly into the water column. Mm -hmm. um, it, it Does it talk about soaking on the bottle? I can't, like soaking your food? Without looking at it, I can't 100% remember. I do believe that it, it recommends or at least mentions you can do a food soak and that's the only way I use it because I mostly I have auto water changes and a lot of, well, as a hobbyist, which I still am a hobbyist, but when I was purely a hobbyist, I had mostly just larger tanks, and it would be like half a bottle, and the stuff's not cheap, and then you wonder, like, is this actually doing right. anything? And, you know, part of it was, I think you can get most of the benefits of dosing the water column by using, um, basically, multivitamins, and that I picked up from another 
hobbyist who's actually you know an ichthyologist and and not everything is water soluble and can be taken up by a fish but you basically can go to a Rite Aid buy the multivitamins about to go out of date and he used like half of one per 20 gallons was like the thing he saw bring fish back from deficiencies and stuff and he you know he'd always preface it with you know there's no scientific reasoning behind this I haven't done any papers on it but here's what I see in my experience and so that's the route I would go if I was you know oh half of a a multivitamin that costs four cents or half a bottle that costs thirteen dollars and so targeting the food and mostly honestly I use it for things like puffers and, and eels and, and other stuff that won't take a wide variety of dry foods super easy. It's when you get a fish that's mostly only eats frozen and live, that's where I feel like uh, the vitamins come in. Because that's really the big difference between frozen and dry foods. Is the dry foods, yeah, we're mixing up fish meal and stuff like that, but it's all the vitamins that are being sprayed and cooked into it so that we, you know, it, it, dry foods are kind of like taking the multivitamin for a fish. Because uh, if you only ever feed let's say frozen bloodworms, yeah, on the packet it says fortified with extra vitamin C, and that makes you feel good, but it, it, it also is missing tons of stuff. So you're like, yeah, getting vitamin C, but what about the other things you need? Oh, well, yeah, it doesn't do that. It what, definitely does. What that. would be the regimen you would say? So somebody's going to come in, they pick up a showed anti-puffer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be a good practice for somebody in a retail store environment to say, oh, with this fish, you should probably also take this Vitakim, and I would recommend soaking let's say, a um, uh, cocktail shrimp mm-hmm. once a week, twice a week? Like, what would you... A couple you... times a week, okay. usually. And, and this, you know, this even goes back into, like, a spiel. I have the spiel because I worked at the store, and then I, you know, opened my own store, and I used to talk about this in live streams a lot. And honestly, I think the perfect blend of food for all fish is, uh, is basically four days a week, being frozen or live foods, so kind of like that, you know, proteins and, and all of that kind of stuff, and then two days a week being uh, the vitamins. And so if it takes dry food, that's great. You can mix that up every week, and each maybe of the two days are two different dry foods. Uh, and then a seventh day where you actually don't feed, and that is to make sure that your filtration's keeping up, make sure that they're still hunting snails and doing natural behaviors and, and all of that kind of stuff, and it gives you a break, keeps you interactive and uh yeah so maybe up to two times and I, I would split it up i wouldn't do like okay it's four days of frozen now two days of dry and then one skipped day you could i would definitely space out like oh we do dry and then frozen frozen dry frozen frozen skip dry type of deal and you know you can make it more complicated with oh i'm going to feed once a day dry food from an auto feeder and then come back with a frozen food and but i think variety is what's important and taking a break because there's you know, when you look at a big group of people, a portion of them are always going to be overfeeders and uh, conditioning the fish to be able to take a break. And that's where you can see, oh, if I was to go on vacation and not feed for the weekend, are my fish going to kill each other? I don't notice that behavior on one day off. Maybe I try two. And, and that goes into learning, like, you know, if you're going to set up an auto feeder, let that feed the fish for two weeks before you go on vacation instead of assuming, oh, it'll work. I bought it. It'll work. And so it's... That's what I found worked for a lot of people. Of taking that one day break and mixing frozen and dry foods solved a lot because there's way too many people that they get a fish tank, they feed a bunch of different foods, they eventually find a good food, and that's you know I'll name drop some like Northfin, New Life Spectrum, Extreme, Hikari, doesn't matter any of the big brands. Eventually you hit one where 
your fish really love it and your maintenance schedule lines up and you're like, this is the best food for my tank. And then you only ever feed that. And even something like New Life Spectrum that claims to be, this is all your fish will ever need. It doesn't have absolutely everything. You know, in a 10 year time, you might go, oh, my Oscar has hole in the head. And, and obviously that presents itself a lot when you have like an Oscar and eats goldfish every day and there's not getting those extra vitamins because we're not gut loading them. That might present itself in eight to 12 months. But these longer stents, and most people never run into that because they will have a power outage or they'll just do something wrong and kill their fish at the six year mark. And so they don't know that the deficiency was coming out at the eight to 10 year mark. But you can forever just kind of future proof yourself. And I do believe a, a, a subset of the hobby is just trying new foods and collecting foods. Everyone's kind of got like, oh, there's my wall of foods that, you know, like if you do the math, that's three years worth of food. Like, yeah, but I got this one at a deal. I got this one at the auction. This one was free, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I like that uh, injecting in your um, feeding recommendation that it's, it, it's you know, feeding is already a fun activity for an Aquarius, mm-hmm. but um, it adds a little bit more purpose to it, right? Trying to get more of a balanced diet, a, a little bit of a better rotation of the food. So I feel like that's that just inherently feels good to be recommending to people um, and makes it a little bit more purpose-driven as opposed to just like a, uh, a, you know, a fun feeding activity or what could potentially turn into a chore. Mm-hmm. So something that's fun at first, um, especially for somebody that's new, maybe in six months they start to feel a little fatigued, like, oh, got to go feed the fish tank again, yep. where it's like, no, no, today is actually your frozen food day, and this is why you're doing the frozen food. And, um, yeah, I think maybe just anything you can do to help spice things up, I guess, or to add a little bit more science or a little bit more purpose or uh, lead to better husbandry practices. I mean, I think we all love to, like, oh, the wife's not watching. I'm going to let the dog lick the bowl. You know, like it's a <laughs> treat that, like, oh, it's something a little different. They're going to like that. and you get that positive feedback, like you're going crazy for this food, like that gives you enjoyment, or at least gives me enjoyment. So I I think that's a very important part of the hobby that people overlook. And they, you know, I used to not know what it meant, but I saw in a previous boss what burnout looks like. I've been through it. I'm actually coming out of burnout right now, which is great. Yeah, you're excited. You hatched Brian shrimp for the first time in a while last night. (laughs) And I'm feeding it out. and, And it was, you know, I've hatched live baby Brian for years in a row before, but it became mundane. And then I hadn't fed live baby Brian in probably six or eight months, and I fed it out yesterday, and the fish went bananas. And I was like, oh, man, this is what I've been missing. Like, why am I so bad? And I know I've done it long enough to know that, you know, hatching out live baby Brian shrimp in a fish room is a night and day difference compared to only feeding dry or frozen. But to actually see... You know, like, oh, I was feeding this food to my dog, and then I fed the one, and we were able to get the one it loves, and it goes nuts for it again. You see it really enjoying it, and that feedback loop is important. And so, like, I set up Brian Shrimp again, and I was thinking after this podcast, like, when I get home, the Brian Shrimp will be ready. I'm going to feed that out. I actually put more Brian Shrimp eggs in because I want to give them even more this time. And so it's making it fun again, which is a very important part of the hobby. Of it's you, It, it doesn't take that long of like one day you wake up and then you're like, I don't think I'm enjoying this. And that's usually where people get different fish and they change up their setups and all of that. But after you've done that too many times, then you just got to go, why am I doing this? And, and, uh, for me, it's, I like to breed fish. So I'm getting back into doing that. There you go. Yeah. Then, uh, cause we have our, our Facebook group of myself, uh, or messenger chat of mm-hmm. UI and Dean. And so it's fun to be able to, to share successes and failures with, with you and Dean. And, 
um, you know, leverage your guys' knowledge and whatnot. So to see you'll you'll be able to start contributing some pictures and whatnot into that mm-hmm. will be pretty cool to to see what you have. Which, by the way, you need to bring me some guppy grass. I, need I have. Some. I just spread it out through my bins. I have quite a bit yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna need to get some guppy grass from you. Um, yeah. So and actually on the note, uh, let's let's end this uh, sponsorship segment with uh, what brine shrimp hatcher are you using by chance? Uh, I use the Zis brine shrimp hatcher after having used every brine shrimp hatcher on the planet, whether it was, uh, you know, made for commercial operations like raising zebra fish. At one point I bought a conical like 10 gallon brine shrimp mm-hmm. hatcher and used that for a little while. And, uh, you know, my favorite, the, the one that would always won for me was the, the tried and true two liter bottle upside down San Francisco brine shrimp hatcher. But the one that finally is beat it is the Zis hatcher it is just straight up better. The other ones were more expensive and different and allowed me to hatch more brine shrimp, but wasn't better. Like it wasn't better for the average hobbyist. I, I could argue maybe not even better for me. Whereas this this, uh, this one, I think is just straight up better. It's a little more spendy, but, and I've got it set up over my sink so I can drain it. It's really efficient for me right now. I'm really enjoying it. Well, on, on, on nice. the spendy side though, you feel it. And like the other Zis products, it is substantial. It is, for sure. It is a sturdy piece of, uh, you know, piece of uh, aquarium equipment that, you know, doesn't feel chintzy. doesn't feel like it's just going to fall apart on you. And I've dropped mine a couple times. I've definitely put it through the paces since I've had these. How long have I been running mine now? Like at least seven or eight months, probably longer than that. Um, and actually at the time of this podcast airing next Monday, which will be the 15th, uh, we should have ours in stock. So very, very drawn out testing process, but, uh, we're finally a year. (laughs) Well, that was one of the products that when I first came on, uh, you showed me, so you had just gotten back from SIPS 2018 and you showed me the, um, the ZB 300. So the, the Mm -hmm. filter, the bio filter. And then you also talked about, yeah, and they had, probably the best brine chip hatcher you'd ever seen at that point they wouldn't even let me take one or anything and that's and that's when i was hooked on i'm like whoa that seems like something we're gonna have to bring on and now it's almost a year and a half later that we're finally like yeah we're actually gonna carry full on like we've got uh two pallets coming over it's a you know roughly 192 units so we'll see how fast uh, we sell out of this first go but i think we're gonna do really well every time we feature it in my video or one of your videos people are you know, always asking, when are you guys going to carry it? When are you guys going to carry it? And I'm, I'm actually very, very happy that uh, we're finally going to offer this one. Yeah. I, to play devil's advocate, I love to be the anti-salesman in that, you know, if a two-liter bottle got me through the last 10 years, it can still get you through, you know, brine shrimp at home. But the, the Zis filter, my own sales pitch to myself is, it's like sitting in a new car. You're like, this is awesome. I'm going to yeah. love this for a long time. Not – and most people – don't buy a new car because their old one wouldn't run anymore. They're like, it's time to treat myself. It's time to, you know, update technology. And that's what this this filter feels like. Because at the end of the day, it's just holding some water and bubbling some brine shrimp eggs. And anything will do that. You know, an old Starbucks cup can do that. But the, the subtleties, if you hatch out brine shrimp every day, you're going to go, well, that was a nice feature. Oh, that was a nice mm-hmm. feature. And if you've never done it before, you'll just take it for granted. You know, like someone who just learns to drive today... They're like, wait, cars came without backup cameras? That's insane, right? But they'll never yeah. know that life, and so. Well, it makes it it makes it easier. Those features they mm-hmm. make it easier. They make it simpler. And when you make things easy and mm-hmm. simple, we're more likely to do them. It, it it takes it from being a chore to an activity that you don't mind doing, or hey, maybe you even actually enjoy it. 
I hated so. scrubbing out the two liter bottle. Like, cause you, yeah. you end up, you gotta get a, like For a sure. toilet brush and you gotta do it. Now you got Brian shrimp eggs stuck to your wrist and your arm hair and you gotta wash that off. And this with the bottom tap drain and all of that and the way you can hang it, it, it has solved all of that for me, which we're only talking 30 seconds of hating hatching brine shrimp every day, but somehow my life is reduced to hating 30 seconds is enough to go, ah, I'll do it tomorrow, ah, I'll do it tomorrow. Yep, yep. Pretty soon I'm not doing it. Completely, yeah. All right, well, that concludes this sponsorship portion of the podcast. Record which, for longest. What are we at, 15? I think, yeah, I think this beats Dean and I. Yeah, because I mean, that was like 10 minutes. Oh, that, man. that one went really long. I should probably listen to these. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. You never know what we're saying. So uh, you are on today, and kind of our theme uh, for the day is to set the scene. We are in my office at uh, Co-op Warehouse um, outside of the Greater Seattle Aquarium, or it's greater Seattle. I'm sorry. That, that will make sense as people know. Uh, outside of the greater Seattle area, I'm looking at my screen and it is the Greater Seattle Aquarium Society's BAP program archive. And so BAP is Breeders Award Program. And what I've chosen to do today is actually kind of go through Corey's progression in the Breeder Award Program and just kind of pick out um, some certain species here that, you know, you submitted into the Breeder Award Program. And then, you know, to really step back for those that don't know what a Breeder's Award Program is, most clubs around the country have a Breeder's Award Program where basically you participate, you breed species of fish, um, inverts, um, you know, what else, what else could they breed? Pretty much just uh, um, cultures, so like live food yep. cultures. You submit them, and depending on the difficulty of what it is you bred, you get points. Mm -hmm. And typically at the end of the year, they do a tally, and whoever has the most points, you know, maybe they win a prize, or you can hit certain kind of, you know, master breeder or novice breeder. Yeah, we usually had like a breeder. rookie of the year, and then we had, you know, because it usually would take people several years to become a master breeder. So you're working your way up the ranks, but then if it was your first year, you'd have that. We also did um, prizes at the end of the year of like, even if you didn't rank up per se, you bred the most fish. Like, oh, here's a prize for that. Like, yeah. And usually when you have people breeding fish, it make it to the auction and they're sharing with their local community. And, and, you know, a guy like me might be, at that time I was ordering guppies out of Thailand, spending a lot of money. And so you kind of want to find a way to like reward the people that are spending a ton of money and then they get $12 for a guppy, you know, as a transaction where I paid $300 to get them in, you know. Mm -hmm. So it never really made sense other than, you know, fun. Yeah, and so th these are really, really fun programs. And, you know, if your club doesn't have one, if you're like a Matt Needham down in South Africa who wants to start one of these programs, uh, they're a great way to, you know, just further the engagement of the club members uh, mm -hmm. with, you know, the larger club body of the society. And, you know, for some people like myself, I'm a little competitive, so it's always kind of nice to compete in something. You, you um, definitely... <laughs> <laughs> like there's there's that I was I was the the chair manager so I didn't really compete against people because if you're the one judging and all of that like of course that qualified and that didn't qualify but like Dean technically isn't a master breeder with this club I believe he's master Ooh, breeder with a different club. I can't wait to rub that but if into Dean him. ever comes back like I will challenge him and try because it's like obviously I have a lot of resources at my disposal I've bred a lot of fish over the years. And it, I don't want to swoop in and be like, well, yeah, of course you took, you know, Master Breeder and all that. But if I was battling Dean, I, I, I kind of stay up late at night and I think about, you know, this is how nerdy I am, reading about in TFH and stuff where Mike Helwig is battling Ted Judy on who can do the most species in a year. Nice. I, I subtly th I think like, oh, Dean and I could wage that war probably. If he wasn't traveling as much and I wasn't traveling, we could have a battle. Because it's, it's not even about who wins. It, I want to say it was something stupid like, 
Ted one with like 172 different species or something. And you start doing the math on that. And that's like, how many different species a month is that breeding? And, and even they admit it wasn't that fun because it was like, get it, spawn it, move it. You know, mm. and it wasn't like, they weren't witnessing all the behaviors and they were doing a lot of stuff they've already done before. But the competitiveness is very fun and you'll make some friends and you'll, you'll trade, you'll find out who's the other guy willing to spend $300 on guppies and you need to be that person's friend. And yeah. Well, yeah. what is the, there's a car competition where they race across the country as fast as they can. Is it the cannonball run or something? Which doesn't yeah, sound like an know. enjoyable experience whatsoever, but they do it for the experience, right? Huh. They do it to say that, you know, we raced from New York to Southern California and it took us, I don't know, 23 hours or some sure. ridiculous thing like that. But it, so that's like the cannonball version for a breeder's award program or right. two fish nerds, right? Going at it, who can breed the most. Um, so, yeah, so a breeder's award program, super cool. If your club has one and you're not participating in it, I would recommend that you do. Um, I actually did do some submissions early on when I joined GSAS. I've kind of fallen off with just work and family commitments, but it's definitely something that I actually I need to go into the fish room and just take some pictures, and I have mm-hmm. some easy submissions. Like, I just need to actually It's a long-term the, program, too. You can always submits. come back. You can have a baby and then get back two years later yeah. and go, hey, yeah, I spawned all this, and here's the proof and, and all of that. So it's it's a... It's a club that once you're kind of in that, you don't go away from it. And you can always look on our website. We do have a database for all the local, well, not all, but anyone who's submitted, which is quite a few of local clubs. So you might have one in your area. They might have a BAP program. And if not, there's still some national clubs like the American Library Association, the American Cichlid Association, the American Killifish Association. There's the CARES program. There's a few that you can get involved in, whether you're in the United States or even worldwide as well. They're not, you know, there's something to be said for meeting your arch nemesis on a, you know, a Tuesday night at dinner talking about, well, I spawned this. How are you doing on that? You know, that's definitely a different feel than, you know, some trash talking over a Facebook group. But nevertheless, it'll be fun. Yeah. So for me right now, I just went and looked at my submissions. Uh, So, you know, early 2018 when I joined GSAS, I've got Dwarf Neon Rainbow, Red Cherry Shrimp, Red Delta Guppy. I've got a total of 25 points, which 25 points makes me a novice yeah so i at least i at least have a level on here so that makes me feel pretty good but mm-hmm. uh, i need to get in the fish room take some pictures and i can e- easily get up to uh maybe yeah i need to go back and look at points but for sure for sure i think i can get up to intermediate and with some some programs have. are very very stringent like mm-hmm. i know with the like i i don't think i'll ever become a master live bearer breeder with the ala because you have to do x amount in each class so you start getting mm. into like oh you haven't bred two different stingrays well you could never be a master breeder then you know so you start getting into these weird like i money can't even buy that fish but yet i gotta spawn it somehow mm-hmm. and so when you see those some of those people working on it for 20 years and when they get it you you really like that guy has done it all like mm-hmm. like you know you might have been on the wait list for x amount of years just to even have a chance at that fish so what's with your uh, your period right here? So your first submission was Endler's Live Bear 2009, and then it looked like you took a couple years off, and then it, you you know hit it in yeah. January 2011 is when you really started going crazy. So I th- and this is you know it's, it's only 11 years ago, but that seems like a long time because that's that is a super long time ago. Yeah, only 11 years. I don't know. That's I mean, a, I guess that's a decade. Because that's like <laughs> that was at the be- towards the beginning of my hobby, right? Yeah. And so I believe what happened was I submitted, like, one thing because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get in the breeder program. It sounds awesome. Like, I'm all about breeding fish. And then it turned out – I remember what had happened. I don't remember who it was, but there was basically, like, 
the, the curse of a breeder program is that a new person comes in, they overhaul it, they run it for about 10 minutes, and then they abandon it because it's way too much work. Like what I do with CARES? Yeah, probably. Although I haven't abandoned it, to be fair. It's still there. <laughs> I still think about it all the time, and I feel guilty. Nonetheless, yeah. go. <laughs> so you burn out from going, I'm going to make this better. I, I know what was wrong with it, and so I'm going to fix it. And I think I submitted one thing, and then that person like quit. And they even like took all the ribbons and stuff. And so like the whole program just broke down. And then I think what happened was when these submissions started coming back in is when I was actively managing the program. It was like, okay, and then I had to lead by example. Like, well, if I'm if no one's submitting anything, then it's going to look weird. So I started submitting the stuff that I was spawning, even though I knew how uh, hypocritical it was of like, I'm going to say that I verified I spawned this, <laughs> you know, self-verification. But I never, I never uh, gave myself the awards, and that's also why I never tried to push for a master breeder certificate because it's if you're the guy that hands out their certificates that doesn't really mean much so i wanted to do under someone else's tutelage of like they're running the program i legit got this and honestly we've never had kind of the same participation level since i left it and the reason i left it i left it the year that we opened the store because it was there were starting to be rumblings of conflict of interest like you're going to own a store you have access to the database you could just call them up and be like i'll buy all your fish and so we didn't want any of that going down. So I stepped down from the board and everything. And so that's that, where... That totally sounds like something... And then it picked back up. So you can see yeah. on here, it actually picked up a few years later when the store was open. And then I started submitting some things just to... Yeah. I was trying to help the new program chair get it going again. Like, here, let me help you. Mm-hmm. Was it, was that Leslie when he took it over? Or? Uh, no, because that would... I think Leslie took it over in like 2018. Okay. And this would have been like 2015. I think this is actually... Um, might have been Steve Waldron of Aquarium Zen. He did it for a couple of months, but I think there was someone in between that mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, your first submission back in 2009 was an Endler's Live Bear. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these, so my plan is to just kind of hit the ones that seem, you know, pretty interesting that I would want to... I guarantee our interesting ones are different. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, all right, so... All right, we're gonna. I'm gonna read these off until I get to my first interesting one on here. Endler's live bear, uh, red ram's horn snail, mosquito larva. Bred those last <laughs> night. I've got a wheelbarrow where I'm harvesting uh, mosquito larva right that's, now. Yeah, you're you're a master breeder with the mosquito larva. Uh-huh. Um, that was fun doing that in the video. By of, the way, the I have larva. a standard I hold myself to that most other programs don't, and it's a moral code. I have to intentionally spawn it. So there was like, because I worked at a fish store and stuff. If so, I think I believe on here it's very late in the career that convict cichlid finally makes a list because I had spawned them <laughs> a thousand times accidentally in my own fish room or at the store, but never had I set up a tank and tried to. The only time I did it was marbled convicts that were super hard to get, and for the life of me, I could never get them to breed. I got them to breed at the store, but I couldn't get mine to breed in my fish nice. room, so I never counted it. Yeah, so your uh, your convicts are on here, 2016. So. Yeah, which I had spawned them, yeah. you know, inadvertently many times before. Nice. Uh, mosquito larva, Daphnia, glass belly guppies, tiger endlers, and then I'm gonna stop at black chin live bear. It's so in my fish room right now. Yeah, yeah. So so tell me a little bit about black chin live bear. Um, how did you come across? Like, can you remember back to 2011? Like, I know exactly I, where I got them. Let's go. I got them from Gary Lang when nice. he flew out to give a talk at the club. And I've always been a live bear nerd. No shocker there. But um, he was flying out with a bunch of rainbow fish, and I don't really care about the rainbows. Like, they're cool, but I didn't spawn rainbows. And he had the Metallicus live bear, which is the black chin live bear. And I think I bought all of them because he didn't have that many of them. And 
unfortunately to this day, it's still the best strain. I don't have that strain, but he had amazing ones. The ones I have now aren't as good and they're not even as prolific. Um, but they were really nice and that kind of, they kind of have a blue eye with a black belly to them and their gonopodium is, is black as well. And it's just a unique looking fish. And it was, you know, one of the first kind of nano libraries I got that wasn't common guppies and endler variants and that kind of stuff. And that really kind of sprung me forward a bit. Yeah. And so what I love about the hobby is, you know, finding out not so much biotype information, but where they do come from in the world. So Giridinius meticulous, Metallicus. Metallicus is yeah. a live-bearing Pasilliad, which is found in Cuba and Costa Rica. So that's pretty sweet. Were Gary's from the wild, or did he get them from another breeder? Usually, they're usually a lot of these are line bred, okay. you know. And so, like something I'm still chasing down is Langhammer Celebes Rainbow because they have the best, or mm. uh, Celebes Halfbeak because they have the best red, you know. So a lot of times, there's a lot of work that went into it, a Stan Schubel guppy or something like that. Whereas like the wild one typically wouldn't have much black on the belly. It's more of a yellow belly. And that's what you see on Aquabit and stuff right now is more of the wild form stuff. Mm. And in this picture we're looking at right now, there's a couple of spots. I prefer them without the spots. I want just the black belly and not so much the spots on them. Yeah, they're definitely a cool looking fish. Um, anything in particular, like if somebody wanted to jump into these, anything in particular to, to know about them, what might have been challenging for you or was it just... Yeah, they're real easy. The only thing I would say is like you might breed these and then be like, I love all these super weird libraries. And then you go on Aquapin and you start buying stuff. And some libraries are crazy aggressive like the brachyraphis ones where it's like oh my gosh it's like i have an aggressive cichlid i didn't know that this little live bear would be so mean uh but these guys are you know they're kind of an awesome nano fish if you've kept heteranda formosa or the least killy fish live bear they're really pretty similar to that cool all right did i pass any of the ones that you'd want to stop on Glass no i just i just really like mosquito larvae and the reason why <laughs> the reason why i actually brought that to the program because i thought it was one of the essential things to really get fish breeding you yeah. know like it, it's people poo poo it and then you're like, well, have you ever done it? Well, no. Well, that's okay. Then like, and then when you start actually, you set something up outside and you start getting that mosquito larva and you start feeding a bigger fish and now they're spawning, you realize that I, I believe that the live foods and everything is just as important as getting the fish to actually breed. Because if you don't have that kind of stuff in place, like mosquito larva might be a bad example, but live baby brine, sure you might be feeding the adults, but if you weren't doing that when the babies are there, what are you going to feed them? Mm -hmm. And so... By teaching people how to do that and awarding them, you know, low points, but some points. And I really wanted it so that I, I'm big on family and getting it to be a family hobby. So, you know, let's say you and your son, maybe he's breeding the mosquito larva, that then you feed to the fish. And now he's helping spawn fish and it's pulling more people into this hobby and, uh, you know, teaching you because everyone knows like, oh, we hate mosquitoes and, oh, you, you know, you, maybe you, someone in your family has seen mosquitoes in a bucket before and you pour that out. But now you're using them for good and you're controlling them and starts a conversation with your neighbor. And I, I, I really am into all that. So. Well, with uh, unfortunately, the, the substantially dark green water makes it a little bit difficult. Uh, but I mean, you can see the mosquito larvae when they're at their surface, but you could also make it like kind of a whack-a-mole game, right? Mm -hmm. So when you actually go to harvest them, if you've got a small child, you know, make sure you supervise as you're around any type of body of water or, or pond so they don't fall in. But, you know, hey, hey, little Johnny, how many can you swoop out? Right, mm -hmm. like how many of those mosquito larvae can you get before they dive down to get away from your net? Kids always want to net fish. Like, no, go net the mosquito yeah, larvae. Yeah, exactly. Don't feed them. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, you know, I, I I harvest them, and actually, I probably should let my my three year old hold them up and let them uh, pass the net over and see all the mosquito larvae wiggling around in there. And I take it over to the uh, the orange uh, Madaka rice fish, and just smack the net 
like right above the water surface and within you know three seconds they all come up to the surface and just start hunting mosquito larvae and that's why it's it's important to me is you can get that with your son whereas if you spawn your discus the sun might be like oh cool you know but they're not really involved in it and Mm -hmm. this actually gets people involved and you know, even my wife, she might be like, we got mosquito larvae, we got to do something about that. Like, no, no, we're feeding it. And she's like, really? Yeah. You know, the first time. And you're like, look. And then you, I brought it into the house and I fed and it was cool. And, you know, there's a story one time when I fed them to guppies that weren't big enough and they hashed out and I had like a bunch of mosquitoes. <laughs> and this was back when I didn't have a fish room. It was in my office. So I just had a lot of mosquitoes in my office for a couple of days. That is awesome. You didn't notice that they weren't going after them? Or you, well, you they just... were, but so like I, I grabbed a tongue because I do everything in excess. So there was like an insane amount and the guppies couldn't eat anymore. And then they kept growing a little bit and they were like, I probably had 30 mosquitoes in my office that had hatched out because they kind of went back because i had a lot of floating plants i didn't know that they weren't no eating. no no so what you, what you were trying to do is you were trying to make a biotope for yourself of That's south right. america so you wanted to relive you know you wanted that amazon experience Just prepping yeah so what better way than to actually have live mosquitoes flying around uh-huh. your office i should i should do that here actually. That's right it's a good time I don't think in the employee handbook, I don't think it says anything about hatching out uh, mosquitoes. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so uh, full red Moscow guppy, albino red Moscow guppy, uh, red wag swordtail, ponds. This is giving everybody like a full glimpse of like what you've actually bred. Yeah. Uh, snowball shrimp. What is a snowball shrimp? So the Z- snowball shrimp is Zang- mostly... Zangagen- that's what it was called okay. back when in 2011. Um but it's mostly a translucent shrimp, maybe a little bit of like opaque whiteness to it, but all the eggs are white. So that's why they call it a snowball ah. shrimp. And that was in my phase in 2011 where I was making a ton of money selling shrimp to the club and on Aquabid and doing all that kind of stuff. And, and a bunch of my friends um, were basically... So like if you guys have been around for a long time, you used to know we used to sell like the shrimp rancher shirts and that kind of stuff. And... We had friends that ran businesses breeding shrimp and selling them, and that was me where I, I bought 200 of them. I put them into a 55-gallon aquarium, and I was going to make a million dollars, and I learned the lesson of just because you have a cycle tank doesn't mean you have enough little uh, infusoria and and little critters for these shrimp. They were actually starving to death. I couldn't figure out why I was losing like two or three a day for weeks on end. And it was just sheer not enough food. And so that's where I advise people now, like, just a cycle tank isn't the same as a seasoned tank. And I learned that from watching, oh, I lost another $15 today every day because they're like five bucks when you're buying them in mass, you know. So I invested quite a bit because I was breeding lots of cherry shrimp and some of these other ones. And I decided, well, I need oranges. I need snowballs. I need blue velvets. I need Mountain Dew shrimp. I need... Well, you you filmed, and so I've I've actually had that same experience here with our 12-gallon... A bookcase shelf that that I set up for the for the crew in our break room, where I went through probably two or three batches of my own homebred um, red cherry shrimp that you've you filmed and we featured it in uh, my fish room tour. But there are hundreds of cherry shrimp. I have no problem breeding cherry shrimp in that tank, and I would bring in 20, 30 um, at a time, and they would just slowly die off, and we couldn't figure it out. Is there something in the water? Is there something wrong with you know something that I might have put in this tank? And I think it all comes down to it just wasn't seasoned. It just yeah. wasn't a seasoned tank. Which no one that. talks about a tank being yeah. seasoned. It's cycled or not, but I believe that yeah. seasoned is very important. So these snowball shrimp, I feel like I don't see these talked about or in any of the yeah. shrimp groups or what, do they just fall out of favor? It was... I think, you know, at the time, at the time in 2011, these were cutting edge. Like, oh, wow, this was the King Kong shrimp. This was mm-hmm. whatever the latest and greatest was. It was pretty much like you had these, 
you had uh, so you had you had reds and you had fire painted, you had painted, you had you know that, and then you had like blues and whites pretty much, and then you had crystal red and, and black, and then like all the the craziest shrimp you could have would be an orange eye blue tiger, right? And they were crazy expensive, but there wasn't nearly the width of shrimp there is now, and I think honestly. If it's at the store, people just go, oh, is that just a, not a good cherry shrimp? Or, oh, is that a ghost shrimp? <laughs> right. But at the time, in the, the shrimp nerd world, they were all the rage. And so it's kind of what I feel like um, really shrimp in our store right now. We have some, and some people buy them, but the average public just goes, what's wrong with that cherry shrimp? Why isn't it all red instead <laughs> of kind of red and translucent? It's like, no, no, it's supposed to be that way. It's cooler, right? Yeah. And they're like, no, I'll take the red one. And yeah. so I think it's a, you know, you got to you gotta really love shrimp to go, hey, I like this thing because it's different than what I have because I own yeah. all of them already. Yeah, which on the note of shrimp, there's a, there's a guy out of South Korea. I think it's a guy, um, I assume. So there's a breeder out of South Korea, Ma Wu, that is friends with or I follow on Facebook. But this person posts up these metallic shrimp uh, that he's working with and breeding, and it is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Lukomp, he's got a friend that he's photographing some yeah, of their shrimp, it and it's like, how is it even possible? It's like they've they've taken like metallic paint and painted them on the carapace of these of these shrimp. They're they're just insane, and it's like mm-hmm. how much far like how much farther can they push this designer shrimp coloration patterning? It's it's nuts. It's just absolutely mind boggling. Mm-hmm. All right, so. Let's go back to this tab. All right, let's go down. Da, da, da. I'm going to skip a little bit. So what, what is this? Multicolor Victoria Pseudocranalibris Multicolor Victoria. Whoa. Yeah, it's the Egyptian mouse breeder is ah, a common name. Okay. Yep. We still carry those in the store from time to time for my love for them. The, at the time when I got them, I was reading all the articles and everything, and it's like they'd been like gone since the late 80s, early 90s, and... I don't remember how I tracked them down. I think I ended up finding them on Aquabid. And, again, I bought those, bred a ton of them, and made a stupid amount of money. And that's that was kind of what cemented me into, like, hey, there's money to be made here because if you just find what people want but don't know how to get a hold of, then you can make quite a bit of money. And so the, the funny part is... Like the the ones that everyone really wanted were multicolor, multicolor, but I could only find multicolor Victoria, and then there's also uh, multicolor uh, Nicholasi, and so there's a bunch of different variants, um, and they're all super cool. They're a little bit ornery, but what I liked about them is being a West African cichlid, you could still keep them in like a planted tank and kind of a community tank. They're almost like a a hyped up kind of aggressive uh, epistogramma that will swim midwater and is a little bit bigger and bulkier, but it would work with tetras and all that kind of stuff. And so these guys are coming from lakes? Is that... You know, no, I, they're I, found, in, found in rivers, lakes, and other freshwater habitats. Yeah. Okay, so just kind of all over the place. That, so that's what always... Like, I'm never 100% sure because I haven't been there. And so like a, uh, like a Mabu puffer, right? They say it's from a lake or a river, and it's like, well, which one? Or is it both? Like, it's kind of a weird... I think it's supposed to be Pool Malabo, right? That big, giant pool on the uh, on the Congo. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, because I've never been big into, like, what is the body of water? I just focus mm-hmm. on how do I breed it? What does it do? How do I keep it alive? How do I do these things? I focus on the body of water because I struggle with the breeding side of things. So, you know, novice breeder here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, Lamont, my uh, the old employee we had, he would always focus on where stuff came, and that, mm-hmm. that's what helped him 
in the snake world recreate conditions he could spawn stuff no one else could spawn and he was good with fish like that too yeah. so it, it definitely has its place uh, very cool all right, let's go down. So did you have to play with any water parameters or anything like that, or you just go straight tap water for the most part? So that's a good point. Everything that's on this list was always my tap water with crushed coral. I never alter water parameters. If it won't breed in my water, I'll just move on to something else. Mm. So I've, I, you know, there's been, oh, that's not true. There might be, I don't know if it's on the list, uh, but the only thing I ever actually altered water for was crystal shrimp because I, I had tried 4 billion ways to do it without using ADA soil, and then I had to prove it to myself, like, is it I'm bad and I can't do this? Or can it literally not be done without ADA soil? And once I did ADA soil, I made tons of them. What's the idea behind that? Why, why ADA soil? It helps keep the water buffered at 6.4 with a low hardness. Uh. And any, like, even 6.6, not good enough. Like, it was not, no matter what I tried, I could not do it. And the minute, it was like, I it was a 40 breeder. I put in the ADA soil like a month later. I had some babies, and then I didn't do a water change for like a year and a half. And it was like, yeah, this thing's just a factory. Like <laughs> it, it really was. And everyone else that was breeding crystal shrimp at the time was keeping on ADA soil. And I would have to guess there's a t- more tolerance in the pH and the hardness a little bit now since they're being so massively bred. But at the time, they were highly, highly inbred. And everyone was doing the same thing, and me trying to do something different was not giving me good results. So was this just a coincidence that ADA soil happened to work so well for these shrimp, or was it like the ADA team, that was one of the, you know, the things I, that they were, they were shooting for I'm with the not soil. sure. I, I do know that I, I would think that the ADA team were focusing on the fact that that lower pH was better for plants, right. and then it just so happened to be that it was also beneficial for those shrimp. But back then, at least... The aquascaping hobby and the shrimp hobby were almost the same hobbyist. Now, they're very distinct groups. There's people that will have an entire shrimp room right. with almost no plants in it, and they'll just be working on you know, breeding them. And then you have aquascapers who, yeah, they have some shrimp, but they're only there to eat uh, uh, algae. And you know, now you have hobbyists like me that would do both a little bit, but it used to be only that where it would be a very highly – uh, highly aquascape tank with very high CO2, and the shrimp would be just like clinging on for mm-hmm. life most of the time. All right, so this is this is a good one on that note of messing with water. So cherry spot uh, trophius. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was under the impression that trophius are definitely one of the more picky and sensitive to water, but obviously you're able to find that with just our water and crushed coral. Yeah, so no problem. You know, the store I used to work at had 300 tanks, and it was known for African cichlids, and I bred a lot of African cichlids and uh, yeah, I never used any like cichlid buffers or anything like that. It was always some crushed coral and normal amounts of water changes. But in general, almost every African I've ever bred has been at a 7.0 to 7.2 pH at max. Yeah, that's a great looking trophies too. Mm-hmm. Those two nice red spots on the body. Yeah, that, those are, you know, I, I, at that point in my hobby, I couldn't really afford, like a colony of Trophius off Aquabid would be in the five $600 range, and I could never justify it. So it would be like someone would bring some into the store, I would take them home, breed them, flood our store a little bit, mm-hmm. then kind of move on. But Okay, yeah. so let's let's talk in specific about this, because I think Trophius are one of the species that I do want to work with. Um, the next time we go and visit the, the extreme farm in Florida, I'm going to snuggle back, smuggle back, snuggle. I'll snuggle <laughs> with them, but I'm going to smuggle out some of those uh, pineapple Trophius that Rick had, because those things are just amazing. I fell in love with those fish. Um, 55 or 40 breeder, what would you have these in? Uh, at the time, it probably would or have 75, been... 75, maybe? No, it would have been a 55 or a 40. Uh, I think it would have been in a 55. Okay. Because I was using kind of ghetto 
racking systems, like not even Gladiator Costco style, because that didn't really exist. It was more flimsy metal, and I could put a four-foot tank that would kind of hang over the ends a little nice. bit, just in the center, and it was good enough. Nice. Uh, so, what? okay, in a 55, what, what's your ideal group size if you're going for breeding? Usually, always, I wanted a group of 12. 12. So, at, at a group of six, you have a 92% chance of having male and female, and every one you add after that kind of adds one more percent. And a group of 12 let you cull down the extra males and things like that. And, and it was just, you know, if you spend $300 and then you lose your only female because you have too many males, you just have $300 of uselessness. So your odds went up. And you want to spread aggression around. And different Africans or even just different trophies, um, the more you have, the easier it usually is. And if you were doing something like peacocks, it would, I, would, I would literally ask people, like, can I buy two males and ten females? And they would always say, sure, because no one ever buys the females. Right. So... Uh, but yeah, spreading aggression around is making sure you had enough, and then is your resting group size twelve, or you're starting with twelve, knowing that you're probably going to whittle down to maybe eight, and that will be the resting group. Usually, size. I would just put twelve in, and I would monitor. And if I had someone who's really aggressive, maybe he would go to the store and get sold off. But I would have twelve, and then I like to colony breed a lot of times, so I'd let some spit, but then I would strip some. And I would just make the colony bigger and bigger and bigger. That was going to be my next question on yeah. if you let them keep their eggs or if you're actually stripping them. <coughs> Usually, especially when it was new, I would strip them so that I would get maximum fry out of their mouth. Because if you let them spit, maybe they spit 30 eggs and you raise up two. If you take them out yourself, you take out 30, you probably raise up 29. Right, right. Uh, taking out as an egg size or are you stripping actual, like, very small fry? Usually I would try and time it so they were egg yolk fry. So... For me, that was typically in the 12 to 14 day yeah. range. I would, I would, you know, if you're in your fish room every day, you kind of see the first day they hold, and you kind of take like, okay, for for sure, I'm waiting a week, mm-hmm. and then it was like, okay, and then oh, my day's off Thursday, great. I'll next week on Thursday, I'll pull them, and we'll just hope that we're pretty close. Yeah, because I, I try to walk the line with uh, like with bristle nose, right? They're holding them up in a cave. Uh, the the fry with the egg sac will stay in the cave, and then there's like you, know, you try to find that fi- that sweet point where they're almost done with the the yolk sac, and then you can basically move the juvenile or the fry with the one male still in the cave and just shake them all out, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're they're going to be just fine on their own outside of the cave, and then you just put dad back in that nor- in that other aquarium, and so that way you don't have to worry about um, growing out all these fish, eventually catching them out in one of your breeder tanks. Mm-hmm. So. No, that's awesome. Great. That's actually really nice to hear that we can do trophies in our water with just some crushed coral in there. Yeah, I don't that's know if nice. it's on the list. I've spawned more. I've spawned probably at least three species of trophies. I don't know if I. Well, them all, I don't but... know if. Uh, I'm not trying to brag. Well, here, I'm just but you know, so it's not just like a one of like Pam Chim uh, or Pam Chin. Uh, Corey's coming for you. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> three versus probably like fifty-five or something different species. And and swam with them. You know. Yeah. Uh, good times. You really want to go in that crocodile-infested water, man? No one that wants was to, so but crazy. you get overcome with seeing the fish in the wild. The, her friends, those European dudes, were cool with being in crocodile-infested water. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm going in, <laughs> but I don't think anyone sets out like, well, I wasn't going to go, but now uh, that I know there's crocs, I am going. Oh, jeez. You never know. You never know. All right, so we were on uh, Cherry Spot Trophius. Let's keep going down here. Plumetail platy. What makes a plumetail platy? Let's, let's look that So up. the plumetail platy... I, I mean, I assume most people listening know what a platy is, but it has an extension on the tail that um, is almost like a spear tail, but it's 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 just an extension of the tail, and it's kind of a cool okay. thing you don't yeah. see. It used to be very popular, kind of 80s and early 90s, and then... That's like a Mickey Mouse plume tail right there. Correct. Okay. Yeah, what you're looking at is a Mickey Mouse plume tail, and 
Um, I'm always drawn to, because I would read books and stuff, right? And I'd be like, wait, I've never seen this in the hobby ever. It's 2012. Where'd this thing go? And then I'd get on this kick of like... It was probably this one right here. Yeah. <laughs> probably be. this old book right here with it. So then i get on this kick of like, well, it's got to be somewhere. I'll find it. And when I do, no one else will want it. But then I'll be like, <laughs> I did that. And so I'd just get on this weird... Because at a certain point, you've seen every listing on, on Aquabid, and you've, you've done a lot of things, and you're like, I just want something slightly different. Right. And so you, you do it. You, you hunt. And I, I do believe there's somebody said, I really love hunting to find it. I love, like, it took me three years to find this, and no one else cares, but I do. How many tanks were you running in the fish room in 2011? Or actually, was this in the, in the condo with the downstairs in the garage? Yeah, so I was okay. in, a, in a duplex, and there's actually a video of this um, yeah, on good. the site yeah. when I entered, and I... And so at that point, I was probably running probably around 40 to 50 tanks. Okay. You know, there was some 10 gallons on ends. There were some 20s. And even at that time, when I was working for another store, I would buy uh, portions of the store that would go out of business. And then I would spend weeks with my buddy cleaning up 30 years of fish tank, fish store grime off the stuff. And what I would do is we'd buy, let's say, two or three racks and we would, after splitting the profits of cleaning it up and selling it, I'd get to keep a rack full of tanks to have set up in my garage, and he got the, the his portion of money, and that's how I funded, like, you know, when you work at a fish store, at least back then, you didn't make very much money, and you have an addiction to fish. You had to get crafty on how am I going to generate money. So even though I would sell tons of stuff on Aquabid, it didn't really pay bills. It just bought more fish. <laughs> it just funded the addiction. Yep, yep. Uh, what was I going to ask you on that note of, uh, oh, uh, no auto auto change, right, at that house? No, there was uh, towards the end. Oh, yeah, okay. that's, so the 305-gallon tank, which is almost exactly what Murphy's living in right now. He lives in, you know, the, the 360, but um, that's where I started it, and that's where I learned to tap off of the washer and dryer line, come into one line, dial in the temperature, and I used a drip emitter and then I had it drain out my garage door, and then that's how you learn, like, oh, in the winter when it freezes solid, you flood a little bit, and you learn all these little tricks that you tell people, hey, don't run into that problem that I did. That's maybe happened to me twice. Yeah, so that's how you, <laughs> you learn from that, and you go, oh, okay, but yeah, having, you know, learning, like, well, what is one gallon per hour versus half a gallon per hour versus all of this, and, and you know, I did fall in love with it, but it was only, like, one, maybe two tanks. I think it was only one ever in the garage, and it was that giant tank because there was so many fish and there was mm -hmm. feeding so much that I needed the extra help. I still had to do big water changes anyway just to clean the sumps and all of that, but everything else was on manual. And, uh, you know, I, I still would make a case for manual might be better. It's, 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 I can make the case either way. It's really nice just to take care of water parameters. Another thing, when you're actually cleaning a tank, you see what's starting to go wrong. Ooh, that, that fish is getting beat up. Like, look at this tail. You don't yeah. see that as much when you have auto water change. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I've been doing it so much now these past, like, three months that really trying to take on that Dean mindset of, of gravel vacuuming and trying to have my tanks as clean as possible that, I mean, the discus tanks for sure get graveled back once every day, day and a half. Like, no, I, I, I actually, it's to the point now where I feel kind of, like, I don't know, like, I feel dirty myself if I haven't gone in and vacuumed out the discus tanks. Mm -hmm. um, so even though I still have the auto water change, for 50% of the tanks, I think it's sufficient, uh, plus they have plants. But especially for those heavier stock tanks, for those discus tanks, I'm doing the gravel vacuum consistently, the angel fish grow out tanks. Uh, but I'm also supplementing with just straight up python hook, 
onto the aquarium and just let that water run for like 10 minutes. So every couple of days I will supplement and do a much larger water change just mm-hmm. to make sure that system is clean. Because if I'm putting in five to 10 gallons, depending on which tank we're talking about through the auto water change, it's diluting with the old water, right? So it's not like, you know, it's not, it's not a full on water change. Like you're not putting in just straight clean water. You're just kind of, kind of mixing it up a little bit. So, um, sometimes I feel like I need that extra reassurance. Um, cause you know, you can't auto water change yourself through things. I think that's one of, the, that's probably like my one takeaway. If somebody was going to set up a fish room, like, yep, set up a fish room, do auto water change, but you cannot just like power your way through unless you're going to mm-hmm. let it run for two hours at a time. Even then. And I you're going to drain your hot it. water tank, right? Yeah. Like, you know. I mean, I have tankless, and so I can run unlimited. And even then, it's it's still not. There's this. There's. It's like that season thing. I don't know what it is, but trust me, if something's going wrong, and like on the 800 gallon, it's like I'll oh, just turn the water change on for six hours. At the end, it's still not right. It's mm-hmm. like it's. It'll never replace. Like, well, you know, if I had gravel vac, if I had service things, if I had done it myself, you get a better result somehow. Yeah. Like it. It's not shocking, but at the same time, you're like, but it shouldn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. And now you've talked about this one before, your ye- uh, yellow labs. That's actually a very timely one because I, I have, I'll be picking some yellow labs up uh, on Thursday at the airport. Nice. <laughs> nice. Who'd you, uh, who'd you get these from? Aqua? Uh, those original oh, oh, ones? Oh, these are, yeah, who are these yellow labs? Come? The oh. original ones here in 2011 came from my boss at uh, Conway Tropical Fish, and he had been line breeding them for a while, and he had gotten them from someone who had line bred them for a long time. And this is exactly like the the Zis brine shrimp hatcher. I didn't know that my first yellow labs are the best yellow labs I've ever seen in my career. And so I bred them and we sold them and we did all that and I just took them for granted of like, yeah, yellow labs are amazing. Thick black lines, breed super easy, super electric yellow. They hadn't been uh, contaminated by being crossbred. And I just kind of let them go when we moved. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm done. I did that for like five years. I'm done with that. And now I, I, I've searched the internet so many times trying to find something that even resembles how good they were. And they, I can't, the closest I found were uh, at Goliad Farms, Charles Clapsaddle. And he's been working with them since 2006, the strain that he has. And he's targeting a little more goldish yellow than the electric yellow. Uh, but, uh, so I spent, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks with him. And he's air freighting them over. And because I was willing to pick them up at the airport, he's actually going to include a couple extra fish that makes his life a little easier and kind of guarantees they're going to show up on time and so that's one of the fish that i'm going to play with again because it's one of the few that my wife really loves as well and uh you know too often yeah so in the pictures you're looking at a lot of them you'll see like the the black almost doesn't go you know on that dorsal fin head to tail Mm -hmm. and it can be real thin it should be just like completely solid but it should be completely solid black thick black yeah like almost like that yeah like that's a drawing, yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. much more similar to how it should be. That really thick, dark band, and same with the pectoral fins and and stuff like that. And so, I char I, I trust Charles Clapsaddle, and he knows what looks good, and he's been working on it, and he's doing things that um, I would say help a breeder too. Like he wants the males to have the black pectoral fins, and the females to only have the gold or the yellow fins. So it's really easy to sex at an early age. And that's a really nice feature to have. And we kind of had that going in the set that he had. And, uh, you know, I, I went back probably four years ago to the store. And I was like, do you have any? And he's like, no, no one's been breeding them. We kind of lost we kind of lost track of them there. And you can see he's got, like, now Randy's pulled up the picture of the ones, you know, that's representative of what I should be ordering. 
and you can see that the black is really nice and black and thick and it's there and it's kind of got a uh, more of a gold sheen and you can see there's like a little bit as i call it like the fish is a little dirty like some of the scales like there's a little bit of pigment there that we're going to work on trying to get out long term but it gives me a project and what i learn is you know you fall in love with things and i'm at a point now where you know i own aquarium co-op i have access to everything and i find myself keep I keep going back to what I fell in love with when I had nothing, you know, mm. like whatever drew me back then, even though I could have anything now, I'm still drawn to the same fish. So whether that fish is a hundred dollars or $1 doesn't matter to me. Um, you know, so I might've fallen in love with it cause I bred it for money. Now I just want to breed it and I want to supply people with a quality fish. Like I can give it away. I mean, mm -hmm. I give it to the store and they sell it for whatever. I don't care. But even Dean and I were talking about it last night. He goes, I don't breed fish for the money anymore because that doesn't matter. Like yeah. I, I'm retired and all that, so it's got to be a fish I enjoy, and I, I resonate with that because I, for a while, while the store like didn't pay me enough, I had to breed fish to bring into the store to make money. Otherwise, bills weren't getting paid, and that was the worst spot I'd ever been in in my fish career. Of like, oh, I'm breeding stuff I don't care about to make money so that I can live. Yeah, no, these would be cool to see. Yeah, I can't wait to see uh, you start breeding these up. That that's a definitely. It'll be a long-term project yeah. to probably get what I want out yeah. of it, but um, yeah, I just know in, in, in past conversations with you that this is something that you know you really, really enjoyed breeding. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about it on live streams and just in our own conversations that you know this is something that you really liked. Um, anything, anything in particular that uh, you do with these fish, feeding-wise, husbandry-wise? The only thing that I would say I do different was what I learned from my old boss, and that was feed them lots of, uh, like, Hikari gold pellets. Like, even though they're omnivores and they shouldn't have that much protein and all of that, we found that they really did well on that type of pellet. So I'm not afraid to feed African cichlids that are the omnivore variety, not the, you know, predator haps and all that, but, like, more protein. And, like, I know what I'm going to – I'm going to feed them protein – and then I'm going to switch it off with, like, uh, spirulina brine shrimp. And then I'm also going to switch it off with daphnia. Or not daphnia. Well, sure, if I have extra daphnia. But uh, duckweed out of my ponds. Mm. And so that's just, like, some of that roughage. They'll eat it. That'll be great. And, uh, but, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I learned I learned lessons early on with the Yellow Labs and the uh, Demasoni. And that was I tried to power feed them, you know, brine shrimp, bloodworms, all that. Grow them really fast. And I just gave them Malawi bloat and killed them all. Um which sucked because I was breeding them, you know, so it's like, oh, the baby's replacing the adults, but I don't understand why they're dying, even though, like, it seemed like it should work, and I didn't really understand Malawi bloat, and it's not a race, like, usually when you're new to breeding, you think, oh, they got to get this big before they breed, it's not big, it's, they got to be this old, like, you know, so yeah. it's, it's all about an age thing, are they mature, are they ready, are the females ready, do they have enough nutrition, not they hit four inches why isn't there babies like at four inches they make babies like well yes but if you can grow one to four inches in a year and the person over there it took four years like maybe they don't mature out till year two or three mm -hmm. so that's it took me a while to learn that yeah do you think there's there's an opportunity so given how much success you've had with african cichlids in in our local water with crushed coral that if magically aquarium co-op were to have enough space for 30 more display tanks mm -hmm. that we would have kind of a quasi smallish African cichlid selection, perhaps. No, we've tried it in the past. <laughs> and the problem is the culture around African cichlids doesn't align with our culture. And the problem is people only want the males and they get upset when they don't get along and they're, they'll spend $60 for that strawberry peacock that looks amazing and then when their Jack Dempsey kills it, which mm. you're like, wait, that's not even an African cichlid. But the culture there is 
kind of the cichlids go with the cichlids, and then you've got the subcultures of like, oh, I'm only a Lake Tanganyikan guy, I'm only a Lake Victoria guy, and or you might be, oh, I only want an all-male peacock show tank versus a Mabuna tank. And so when you try to go with just 30 tanks, which is a lot of tanks, but that's more than most stores do, really, it still doesn't scratch the itch for the people that are actually in the hobby, you know? So it's like, of 30 tanks, well, how many are going to be developed or dedicated to shell dwellers? How many to just like uh, Juliodochromis and Calvis and that kind of stuff from Lake Tanganyika? You got Cyprochromis. Okay, how many different colors of peacocks are you going to carry? And then you got to go to Predator Haps. Like, what about Red Empress? Like, I could probably list... 50 African cichlids that you would be like, for sure, that has to be in an African cichlid store. And so 30 tanks couldn't even come close to doing it right. So so then if we could do it right, would we? Like if we had the space, right? Like how, so what one, I fear how is many that, tanks would that take? How many tanks would that take to do it right? Uh, yeah, probably like 100 probably to wow. do it right. How many tanks do we have in the store right now? 100. Okay. So we'd have to like double <laughs> okay. to do it right. And... The problem is you would need someone that is passionate about African cichlids and is not an elitist, because that happens a lot, uh, and then also wanted to teach people. And we'd have to make a, a, a big branded effort to show things like, like one of the experiments I did in here, even in this ISBAP program, is I was always looking for sustainability. So I built a 55-gallon tank that bred Cyprochromus, which is a Lake Tanganyikan schooling fish, mouth brooder, which isn't typical of Lake Tanganyika, and cherry shrimp. And to kind of prove the point of like, just because it's an African cichlid doesn't mean it's aggressive. Like the mouth on this thing is tiny. And so, and then I would like, at the store, we would do things like set up yellow labs and then turquoise rainbows. So you have this turquoise color and this yellow African cichlid looked amazing and they cohabitated just fine. They can eat the same food and all of that. And you broke the barriers. But you know, there's too many people that hate hybrids. There's too many people that only want African cichlids. You can't mix lakes. You can't do all these things. And it's like, well, one half is we do it because we don't know what we're doing. And the other half is we do it out of elitism of like, oh, I only like this lake. And we would need someone to really chaperone and teach that style. And it's, you know, I don't think that, you know, maybe a Peacock and a Jack Dempsey can never go together. But I do think that's going to be a harder setup than uh, trying to do you know, maybe just males and females of one species, that, you know. That, and that's I, basically a whole other store, like the amount of effort yeah. to do that. It almost sounds like, yeah, that's just another store. We try, we tried to do it where we carried some, and then we would special order and things like that. And, and too often they would, and one of the problems is, you know, oh, you want a, a cherry spot trophius, but you only want this specific collection point. Well, I can only get these two other collections. I'm not <laughs> interested in those two. And it's like, oh, well. You know, and so you'd run into that a lot, and you'd have these, like, long waitlists running of, like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to fulfill that. And then maybe you do get it, and you're like, oh, I got that off Aquabid three weeks ago. And so you almost have to have this big selection, and then you have to keep them up. You have to feed them, and you have to really uh, teach people why they're good. And then the problem you run into once you build this thriving community, and that's where the hobby's at right now, is if you've done it right, people are successful at breeding, and now they've got a ton of fish, and they're coming back to the stores, and even... What happens is you don't get the whole truth because people don't understand that they're lying to you. So they go, oh, yes, I made yellow labs. And you go, great. Oh, man, they look so good. I'd love to buy them off you. And they're not seeing that their zebra and their yellow lab are breeding. And they just assume the yellow labs are breeding in their tank. But they don't see that the male zebra 
and the female Yellow Lab actually are the ones that bred. And so now you're selling hybrids out and you're kind of making the species worse without knowing it. And you would run into that all the time. And so that would be shunned upon. Whereas if you're mixing peacocks to make OB peacocks and other strains that look really cool, that's held up to like, that's worth more money. And so you've got this weird thing going on that you eventually just end up with like tons of mutts and things aren't pure and, and not that things have to be pure, but if you, you know, if I'm on a quest to find a really nice looking yellow, uh, uh, Labrachromis, but I go to the store and they're like, yeah, we're getting it from the, this person. And they're actually making hybrids without knowing it. I'm not getting what I actually tried to buy. And I might've been willing to pay a premium and all of that. And, and so we're, we've kind of seen people get burned and that's why it led to the movement of everyone wanting so much wild caught fish. If it's wild caught, right. we can't have this problem. And then you've ran into people, lots of people kind of counterfeiting and just saying like, my F2s are wild caught cause no one's running DNA checks, right? So you just go, you know, if I breed a bunch of stuff and I'm like, of course it's wild caught. People just believe you, like if you had a reputation and then you could sell it to a store and the store always kind of has that plausible deniability of like, well, they were sold to us as wild, so they're wild. And that, you know, kind of further undermined the hobby and and I just think that it takes, it's going to take a lot to undo all of that. And I still love the fish. I, you know, as I, as you see, I, before this, I ordered some because I still want to keep them but they're not even good for a store because your 75-gallon tank might hold 25 to 30 African cichlids. You bought them for $10 each, you know, so at 30 of them at 10 bucks, that's $300. I can sell way more than $300 with the plants and neon tetras and all of that. So it doesn't even work out well for a store. And the way it used to work that actually worked and was... That's al- and that's almost a more forgiving setup, too, with the plants, with sure. the neon tetras, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and so the way it used to work and why it made sense for a store is you come in, you buy $300 worth of African cichlids, which, you know, got people their saltwater tank, quote-unquote, because it's got all the color, and then they'd come back, and African cichlids, they get, you know, four to six inches, they eat a lot of food, and they'd buy two eight-ounce bags of Hikari pellets every month, and but now you just order them on Amazon, and so the store that sold you the fish mm. doesn't sell the food, in which case, if you only make $300 off of a 55-gallon tank once, and maybe the average family only has one tank, That's that doesn't keep the store open because they get the one sale, and maybe they get a decoration down the road six months, but if they're not getting the food sales, they don't have the income, and so it doesn't make sense to keep these fish around anymore. And then when you get the point where everyone's making fish, and we ran into this in our store, and this is 10-plus years ago, uh, not, not my store, but the store I worked at, was you get people buying their food online, but then coming in and wanting wanting cash to sell you their fish they bred so you can sell to someone else so they can buy them and then buy their food online and then try to sell you back the fish. So it worked out as like, we're buying all the fish, but we're not making any of the money. This isn't sustainable. And then now we're 10 years out, we're seeing that cichlid stores, for the most part, uh, United States wide, are struggling quite a bit. Not, you know, in the 90s and in early 2000s, they were a lot stronger. Not that they're, I'm sure there's some that are like, they're killing it over there. Yes, but it used to be every state had really good African cichlid stores. They were way more popular. The ACA was much bigger. And the, the business model of it kind of broke down. And that's where people are forced, like, oh, go out of business or sell a different fish. I'll sell a different fish. Hmm. No, that's good. Uh, that's a lot of good insight there. Um, all right. So let's do, let's do one more on here. Is there one? I feel like Red Tail Gadeed. I wouldn't mind having you talk about that. Is there one on here where you're like, ooh, there was some cool stuff about that guy. I should, uh... I mean, I really enjoyed the Nezis. 
Nezacoatzel Zephosphorus. Is that Phosphorus? Uh, so that's either a sword tail or a. It's a sword tail, yeah. Okay. Let's let's look that guy up. So tell me a little bit about the Nezi. So again, I'm you know as you breed all a the nerd. normal yes, you are. <laughs> live bears, right? Like oh, I've done Montezuma sword tails, which have the longest sword tail. You've done Maiai, which are the biggest bodied sword tail. Well, eventually you stumble upon the Nezis. And what's cool about the Nezis is theirs looks like a saber sword. So it actually goes upward instead of going down like a traditional sword tail. And they've got the wild look to them. And they were just something different. And uh, what's really cool about them is they use it like a saber. So they back up to the females and stuff like waving this thing up in the air towards the females. And uh, that they were actually in a tank in my bedroom, a 55-gallon hex. And this was before I found I could make way more money out of that tank by breeding black Moscow guppies. 55-gallon hex. Yeah, nice. acrylic hex. Nice. Um, so, yeah, that was in my, my bedroom. And we were breeding those a long time. And the whole bottom one-third was basically Siswasser tang. Looks like, looks like right there they're kind of saying, they're, they're showing yeah. in this drawings of males at Phosphorus, Nezi performing the mating dance I yeah, would assume yeah how they like back up and yeah. do that weird behavior the course yeah. your behavior is a headstand and backing oh, that's pretty cool and so other sword tails don't do that not so or much not, like not usually they saddle up to the side okay. and kind of they, they, they move their gonopodium to the uh -huh. side and stuff like that where this has this courtship and I don't know if it's because that it, you know these are closer to wild than like most people don't know sword tails aren't very colorful you always uh, use the uh, platies to cross into them to give them the color. So like hmm. an Alvarez eye looks okay, but how do you get the red sword tail? Like, well, you bring up, you bring platy jeans into it. So, um, so I don't know if it's because these are more wild where you still retain that behavior of that weird courtship. Um, but that's where I learned, you know, the light burned out. It was in my, my bedroom and, uh, I let that light be burned out for like six months. And that's where I found out that Siswasertang really loves no light. It grows huh. way faster without light crazy yeah so it was but that you know and that that tank cycled through a few different fish it almost never got water changes because it was in the bedroom it's like you go you go to bed at night and you can think about that like oh yeah i've been meaning to do that water change or i can go to bed because it's 11 30 at night i'm not gonna start that and so but it was a cool fish i got those uh i think i believe i i believe i got those from craig sage that was one of the well that was back when i was doing montezuma swords and his my eye came from him so i was running through the kind of the rare wild type libraries with Greg Sage at that point, whenever that was 2011 or something like that. No, that's awesome. All right. Well, that was a fun, uh, that was a fun little glimpse into your uh, breeder award program career. Uh, let's see here. Was there, was there any other ones that, 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 um, I mean, you got 56 entries in here, so you're not, uh, the fun yeah, part is like in bad. 2016, that's where some of the fish that I've been looking for, for like, you finally you know, found seven or eight years. Like the pygmy sword tail, I had lusted after that in a book. So the powder blue pygmy sword tail for years and years and years, and I finally got a yellow version, which wasn't the blue version, but it was, yeah, if you look it up right now, which he's doing, the powder blue version, I just think is awesome. So I had the yellow version, and it's okay, but the blue, like a, you know, you got you to gotta think of this like miniature blue. Um, well, let's see. If you go back, I actually saw a picture of it, so. It's kind of like right down by the aquarium glazier, like something like that. Yeah, so you got this. And they're only like an, oh, nice. like an inch and a quarter long maybe, so mm -hmm. it's a nano fish. And they just looked really cool. And you'd, you'd only ever see them in Europe, and no one would ship them over. And I eventually got some 
the yellow form, which I, I'd, I'd still keep the blue one, but after I kept them, that's the thing. Like, you pine after them, and I was like, these things aren't even that cool. Like, they kind of <laughs> hide a bunch, and like, ah, I don't know. So you did actually get the powder blue ones no, at one time? No, I didn't get okay. the powder blue, but I got the yellow ones, and that kind of like, eh, maybe I don't need to track down the blue ones. But I actually fell in love with way more was the Pygmy Platy, which I also kind of got from, like, the same guy. And, uh, yeah, that one, it doesn't Zy- look Zy- as cool. Xiphidium? Yeah, Xiphosphorus Xiphidium. It, it's you know it's this dwarf plate doesn't look as cool but they were kind of more kinda, personable and fun. neat looking fish. Yeah, they're not you know they're vertically banded a little bit. Yeah, yeah, they were a fun little fish. And that that's if like if someone around me had them, I'd be like, you know what, I'll take some more of those. Those are fun to have a little group of those in a twenty gallon, just like breeding up a storm and. So if that pow- if that powder blue platy was a platy, right? No, that was uh, a sword sword tail. Tail. If the yeah. powder blue swordtail came on Aquabid, just popped up right there, buy it now. Yeah, if Would it was like them? 30 bucks plus shipping, I'd probably just be like, yeah, I better do that. Okay. But if, I, like, I don't, you know, how I know when I really want something is, like, if I go on Aquabid, let's say, once every two weeks, I didn't even look at, you know, I wasn't looking for Pygmaeus, so it's Xiphosphorus Pygmaeus, whereas before, I'm searching that thing twice a week. Xiphosphorus <laughs> Pygmaeus, I'm looking for this guppy, I'm looking for this live bear, and, you know, you're just like, oh. And, and there's still fish I'm looking for, you know, I, I kick myself every day, that I got rid of um, a, pl- a variatus platy that came from Hawaii that was orange like like uh, like sunkissed soda or whatever like that orange soda and it was metallic mm. and I had just gotten them in and then we, it was like time to open the store like four months later so I made some and I gave them to someone and they didn't thrive for them and I've never seen them since and I kicked myself I've got the next best thing coming which. This seems like way too many things are coming together, so it's going to sound like I'm making all this up, but I got a, I got an email from Carl Trochu this morning that says, hey, I'm ready to send you some of his Ruby Nose Variatus. Nice. That, you know, I filmed, I did a members-only video on our channel about it. Um, but, yeah, so that's going to be overnighted, like, tonight or tomorrow. So I got I to gotta make some tank space, and I've got all these, like, weird little products flying in, which is weird because I wasn't looking for projects. I was like, yeah, let me just get some Yellow Labs, and now I got... And I took, I brought fish home from the store last night. I brought home stuff I've already spawned again: strawberry bettas, which is a mouth-rooting betta, and uh, juraparis, which I've spawned before as well. But I mean, I guess I'm just falling back into nostalgia of like I just want what I had. And so, you know, all of a sudden I went from not caring to can't get enough fish apparently. No, that's good stuff. Yeah, and, and Carl Trochu, that was uh, you'd recommended that I, I should reach out to him and see mm-hmm. if I can get him on the podcast. Yeah, very but I, guy. I enjoyed watching that video of, you know, just something about like. Florida, and I guess I'm kind of kicking myself in the butt for not being back in the hobby when I lived in San Diego and doing that outdoor fish room where you just take some, just mm-hmm. take some 20s and some 55s and throw them up on some cinder blocks and just have them out in the sun and just let them go like that. That looks so cool. Neighbors might not like it, but you know it's like oh man, you just sit back in a lawn chair and just you look and at he, your outdoor he fish wins room. The competitions every year in the swordtail and variatus and the platies, and then. Charles at Goliad Farms would always win the Molly category. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being that I have fawned after these guys as a hobbyist for many, many years, and now the Aquarium Co-op has, like, they may have heard of us. That gets mm-hmm. me in the door, and so now I get to, like, get access to some of these fish, and that's where it's like, I need to make some of these, and then just get them to the store, and then people can, you know, I always want to repeat the cycle. Like, somewhere somewhere else, there's a 20-year-old version of me going, I'm going to buy these, I'm going to breed them, I'm going to sell them, and I'm going to start my fish room, and that's... 
you know, so a lot of times I'm talking people down on price, not because I don't want to pay it, but because I don't want the retail price to be high and where someone can't get into it. Mm-hmm. So. Is, real quick, Trochu, his fish room, it's not very big, right? He didn't no, have... No, it's tiny. He, he, how many it's have, outside. Like, 10 tanks? 15? Yeah, probably something like that in a couple of ponds. And he, he says he sets some up and takes some down because there's... What is it like? Hurricane? Not hurricanes. Monsoon season or whatever it is down there, where yeah. it's like it can get kind of cold, and there can be a lot of water, and there can be some things going on. But uh, but you'd almost assume that somebody that's just like dominating in these fish breeding categories, you know, that it would just be a massive. It's it's always hundred time. tank operation, but to it's your always point, time. yeah. And so that's the thing is, if someone spends four hours a day on fish. It's almost better, like, wait, you only have three aquariums? Yes, I spend four hours on three aquariums every day. That's way better than someone says I have 300 aquariums. Four hours doesn't go nearly as far on 300. And so while it seems like, oh, this guy can't be that good, four hours, like, like every, it's almost like every fish has a a name and he knows it, like, hey, you're developing different than yesterday, where if you have too many tanks, you don't see, you know, like we talked about earlier, auto water change, you didn't see it was getting beat up, and that might take weeks he notices it within hours, like mm-hmm. a change in the fish. And so he's really in tune and he, he does very specific things. And that's why he's just been, that's why he wins is like, he works with a select few strains, he puts in tons and tons and tons of time into that. Whereas you have a whole fish room and if you spend two hours a day, that gets split up between all yep. the fish. But if it was only on one set of discus, you're going to know everything there is to know about that set of discus after you know, 20 yeah. years of doing it. I've been thinking about it these past couple of weeks of, do I decommission three of the four racks in the fish room and just focus on a very select few tanks? And then maybe as they breed, bring on some of these tens and twenties back online just for purely grow out, but just mm-hmm. really, uh, really parse down the species that I actually have and just focus on say the discus. So it's kill indeed because my discus have now laid eggs. The tiger turquoise, they've laid eggs on the back, uh, fluval. It's like an E 200, probably four times in a row now. Yeah. And he's like, move the heater, put the slate in front of the heater. Yeah. <laughs> and so I put it next to the heater between the Zis and, uh, the slate is leaning between the Zis and the E 200 and they're still laying on the E 200. They've done it twice. Now you love it. Cause it's like the form of trolling, right? Like yeah. the fish are trolling me. They don't even know it. Um, and Dean's like, come on, just do it. And it's like, man, between work and family, it's like, I just, and taking care of all of the tanks, right. Instead of just like, four or five mm-hmm. oh, that I'm actually working with. So, you know, it's just, um, I, I have to assume that, you know, this is just growing as an Aquarius with other things on their plate. And you just, you know, this is just part of. You'll, you'll, you'll of join the this elite group and, you know, I'm going to sound conceited and putting myself in the group, but someone like Dean or the crusty old guy at the back of a fish room meeting has been around forever and a day they instantly know who's putting in the time because they'll have been through all of these stages that you're going through and I've been through and they'll be, they'll know what stage you're at. And so when they see someone at a high level production, they know like that guy's living, eating and breathing fish right now to get that many fish coming out of a room like that. Cause money can't buy that determination, know how ups and downs, all of that. And, and yeah, so that's, you know, I think right now you're in a phase of like, yeah, even if you slim down, you're going to bring them back online. You're going to figure out what works for you. And the reality is what works for you having, uh, you know, a couple of kids right now is what's not going to work for you in five years. Like all of a sudden, like, oh, my kid's eight. You know, like yeah. that's a different scenario than, oh, well, I got to do this and this and this. And maybe your job requirements change in different times of day. And well, well, what do you mean my job requirements me. are going to change? What are, you do, right. what are you doing to me? I mean, maybe you just party <laughs> all the time. There we but go. But even for me, like 
I think the reason I can get back into fish is because I haven't traveled in like six months now. And so it's almost like I, before it was like, oh, things are starting to look good. Got to travel for nine months now and everything's terrible in my fish room. And so I'm actually considering doing very little traveling going forward and really enjoying fish until I, maybe it's two years and I burn out. And I'm like, time to travel. Let's go visit fish in the wild again. But I've been doing the let's go see farms. Let's go do all this and not enough let's use all this stuff I've shown everyone and I've learned to my own advantage. It's like, I'm still wanting to do it, but it's like, well, on to the next show. Got to do the next thing. And uh, so I think that's part of what's feeling like, I feel like I can accomplish something in the fish room again. Because before it's like, sure, I could have a few things breeding, but for me, it's all or nothing. I got to be like, oh, I see all this magical stuff going on. I want to live here versus, ah, just forget about it. Yeah. Well, Corey, we have uh, exceeded the hour mark by a, a good portion. So I want to thank you again for coming on. And I hope that, I hope for you that, I mean, I know that you're obviously so, you're, you're already out there, right? You're out there in the fish world. You do weekly live streams. You talk for two hours. You answer all, answer all sorts of questions. But, you know, I just, I personally, I guess I hope that this is kind of a nice opportunity for you to still be sharing. I love to be interviewed. Because <laughs> I don't have to do the work. I don't have to do the work. You just lied. I love to be interviewed. <laughs> well, because well, you ask the questions, yeah. and I'm like, I haven't talked yeah. about that before. But when you have to put the episode together, like, what am I yeah. going to talk about that I haven't talked about before? Well, then you're kind of not... like saying, you need to know something you don't know. It's like, well, yeah. I can't know that. Well, you're not worried about I, I hope that you get to talk about things that – um, wouldn't lend themselves for a live stream category, right? Or that you wouldn't be able to just ramble on in one of our live streams, just mm-hmm. given the nature of it. And that this is kind of a nice outlet because you're still sharing, but we're still kind of diving into like fish nerdy kind of fun stuff. Yeah, this, this is kind of what I We hope. definitely, I think I've gone down a rabbit hole here that, you know, my audience on YouTube, there could be someone that only owns one aquarium, might own a hundred aquariums, might be a breeder, won't be a breeder. And I need to keep all of their attention. Yeah. Now on this if you're like, wow, I hate breeding fish, I couldn't hate that more, you're just going to skip it, and that's just what it is. But on YouTube, it's more of a livelihood thing, and so I almost have to have the lens of like, well, if someone's only into aquascaping, what are they going to think about this episode? They're going to hate this episode. Yeah. And so I, I do like the format of someone else is running the show, they're asking me the questions, and I love where I have to think or remember like, oh, yeah, that is that crazy story about that, or... You know, like I actually love African cichlids and I love talking about them, but in no way does it make sense for our company to do that, being that we don't really sell the products. We don't even sell the fish at the store. It's not even viable money-wise, but the fact I get to talk about it, it almost, you know, I like to, oh, that's my street cred. That's where I got my chops and breeding and doing all this stuff, and I still love it, but it doesn't make sense to get everyone all hopped up on something that's going to lose us money, you know? So it's, it's a good way. It takes me in directions. I wouldn't normally go like, ah, I'm gonna avoid that subject or, ah, you know, I enjoy it. Good. Good. I think next time I have you on, maybe we'll talk about pickleball. We'll just go, go, we'll just completely derail it pickleball. and do a Aquarius podcast. We'll talk about pickleball and maybe we'll supplement it. Have like a link to one of our matches or something. When, uh, then when we'll courts. talk about magic, the gathering where I really, Ooh, Ooh, but you're like all into vintage though. I got to get you into like some of the newer stuff and do draft. Yeah. So, all right, man. Well, it's been a, it's a good Corey again, always having you on and, uh, till next time.